this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering three conversations from episode 51, precision medicine, fibrosis, liver function, and the future. The first part of this conversation addresses the fact that while we must rely on histopathology, every element of histopathologic analysis is flawed. Given that these flaws make it impossible to replicate biopsy, for a reliability test. Scott suggests that a better solution would entail forget about replicating biopsy and rely on other tests and historical data simply to tell us what improves liver function. Stephen goes on to talk about how we might use some of the 10,000 plus liver biopsy samples that are stored in labs today in pursuit of this kind of analysis. Finally, Scott discusses some of the research that might come out of his lab and the group identifies the most important points they heard in this conversation. Scott has the dual gift of explaining complex phenomena simply and weaving storytelling and humor into every topic he touches. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the conversation on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion group. Jörn Schattenberg. Quick follow-up question, Scott. If you're connecting these changes to outcome, which I think is a critical path forward to use it in the future, should we link this with histological information or should we disconnect from the morphology and look at the function? Do you got any thoughts on that? Scott Friedman. Well, I don't think we can disconnect it from the histology because that's all we got currently. And it is among these many newer modalities, the only one that's been reasonably well validated. Although I like to point out that the NIDDK, which gets full credit for creating a NASH clinical network that has been following over 1,500 patients for many years, they defined a pathologic scoring system. But I like to point out that that scoring system was based, the features, the three features of that scoring system that we know very well is the NAFLD activity score, which are the amount of ballooning, that funny kind of cell death, the amount of lobular inflammation, and the amount of fat. The reason those three parameters, among many others that pathologists could assess, were included in the NAFLD activity score is because they're the only three that the pathologists could agree on to any extent at all. The other features that one would say, yeah, I think there's a lot of this, and the other pathologists would look at the same tissue and say, nah, nah, there's none of that there. So they said, well, let's pick the three that at least the two different observers can agree on. But no one had ever linked those three features to outcomes. And it turns out they don't correlate with outcomes. The only thing that correlates with outcomes in a biopsy is the amount of scar. And so it brings us back to, you know, my home base, which is fundamentally, we need to understand where the scar is coming from, how quickly it's being made, how it's regressed. And that's a whole other discussion, which we know very little about. To get back to your question, Jorn, we need to continue to ground ourselves in histology, albeit complementing it with digital pathology until we have something all the, all the more better. Now, you did mention something important, which is function. If lung doctors are treating a patient for pulmonary fibrosis, which is a very bad disease with a poor five-year survival, maybe 50% at best, but when they're following a patient in a clinical trial to see if a new drug is working, they don't biopsy the lung and say how much scar is there. They look at whether the patient can breathe better, whether they can walk longer in six minutes, whether their breathing tests get better. Those are all function tests. And here we are in the liver biopsying all these patients and sticking this needle in, you know, that's reasonably long uh, to obtain tissue. And yet the liver is such a rich functional organ. So I think rightfully, there's a lot of effort now to say, well, maybe what we should be measuring is the reserve function that the liver has and how much is that reserve being exhausted, whether it's to metabolize drugs or clear blood substrates or what have you. Maybe we ought to start looking at the function of the liver as a better predictor of who's responding to drug and who's going to live longer, better, and feel better. Scott, first of all, this is fantastic. I can follow it 
for a guy whose last natural science course was high school biology, that's pretty good on your part. Well, I, I can get the stick figures out if you want, Roger, but I think we're doing okay. Uh, actually, actually, all you need to do is speak very slowly. No, in all seriousness, <laughs> as, as I'm listening to this discussion about histopathology, I, I do this from time to time on this podcast, I'm reminded of Premarin. Premarin being a drug uh, synthesized from pregnant mare urine, which is where the name comes from. I think all of you know this. It was approved in 1939. At one point in time, sales were up well over a billion dollars a year, and yet nobody could ever make a generic of it. And the reason was because the biochemistry and the blood distribution of Premarin was so poor that nobody could match something that bad. Variability inherent in that drug made it impossible to to genericize it. I sometimes worry about the same thing when we talk about histopathology for all the reasons you just discussed. You've got an NAS score, none of the variables of which correlate to outcome. You've got these really poor reader reliability scores where if, when I was in marketing research, if I told a client that that was my reader reliability, I would have gotten fired immediately. Can, can you paint the picture for how we make the transition so that we don't wind up getting stuck like Premarin back in this bad histopathology forever? No easy answers because it's a little bit of a circular process, meaning people say, well, we want something that's better than biopsy. But how do you know if it's better than biopsy? Does it match what the biopsy shows you? So you're never going to escape this hamster wheel where you're predicating the power of your diagnostic to how good it matches to biopsy. The real acid test of how you get there, uh, which is easier said than done, is can I perform a new diagnostic test that actually predicts in five years who gets into trouble and who doesn't? And we're kind of getting there with a lot of these tests. Rather than start now at time zero and say, okay, let's draw this test now and wait 15 years. Well, of course, nobody's going to do that. But there are possibilities of getting banked blood for a blood test and going back and saying, you know, these 50 patients got into a whole lot of trouble from their liver disease over the next five or 10 years since we first tested them. Let's compare them to an equal number of patients who didn't get worse and see if the biomarker would have predicted who would get worse and who wouldn't. And there are tests that are sort of doing that. I was involved in a study as a co-author in a very lovely paper from actually Eugene Hoshida, who's a molecular biologist now at UT Southwestern, although he was on our faculty for some time. And he worked with historical samples that had been collected over many years by Massimo Colombo in Milano. And he knew which patients had gotten into trouble. And he had the biopsies from 10 years earlier. And what Eugene was able to show is that if you interrogated those tissues from 10 years and often 20 years earlier, there was a pattern of gene expression that predicted that some of these patients were going to get worse. So in many ways, those baby steps are already being taken and in some cases limited success has you know, proven the wisdom of not trying to peg everything back to how good it is at replicating biopsy, but just leapfrogging over the biopsy altogether and trying to get something else that predicts outcome. Stephen Harrison. Yeah, this is a huge issue. You know, getting beyond the biopsy is something that's imperative. You know, maybe I've said it here before on the podcast, but if we can't find a way around this biopsy issue, it has the potential to really set the field back. Because right now, there's no merger and acquisitions happening in the field of NASH. The, the venture capital money is all on the sidelines. People are waiting to see if there's going to be a drug approved, if there really is a path forward. And if you look at where we are with liver biopsy, I mean, I think I'm struck by two things. One, this variability in response, and two, the placebo response. If you look at elafibrinor and obetacolic acid, at the two highest doses studied, the fibrosis response rate was equivalent, between 23 and 24%. 
the placebo response rate is the only reason why OCA has moved forward, albeit they're struggling a bit, but hopefully they cross the finish line, and elafibrinor decided not to move forward with drug development. Are they really that much different in response? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. To your point, we've got to get to the point where we can use blood-based tests and imaging-based tests to predict an outcome and then predict response to therapy and also identify those at-risk NASH patients. And I think there's something to imaging uh, these stellate cells to get us closer to that answer, either in a blood-based test or in an imaging-based test or a combination of both, all looking at it through those the context of those three different contexts of use. We, we've not heard yet from Louise, and um, that's because this has been such a fast-moving and superb conversation. So, Louise, you have anything you want to add, ask about? Louise Campbell. Well, the boys did such a good session, and they asked all the questions that I was going to ask, which um, obviously means I've been doing this podcast way too long. Stephen, Nick, my main question, just listening to Stephen and that there on Elafibrinor and Oka, is there an opportunity to use all of these biopsies that's been obtained to do more stellite cell investigation to see whether or not they were just laden with patients that were unlikely to respond, given how they may have more of the wrong cells and the right cells or more of the badder of the bad in that way that predicts is it an opportunity for people to use all of those slides afterwards to work for the greater good? When I think about that, I think on platform trials. If you've got all of those biopsies in studies that haven't done so well or have just made it across the line, whether or not you can use the technology rather than re-biopsy or go through next waves, take our strength. I'll take a shot at that and see if Scott has anything to add. I mean, I, I think for sure there are a lot of paired liver biopsies. There's a lot of baseline liver biopsies. There's a lot of screen fail liver biopsies. If we look at all the liver biopsy tissue that's been accumulated between all the phase 2b trials and all the phase 3 trials, and you, you incorporate all the screen fails with all those that, that were baseline and put on IP, we're talking over 10,000 liver biopsy specimens. And all of those have some blood work attached to them. Not all of them have stored serum, but a lot of them have stored serum that are still kind of hanging around. And we've been a little bit stovepiped in, in our approach to this. We have had discussions about bringing our baseline liver biopsies, our screen fail biopsies all together and mining them for what data we could get out of that, which would be, is there a blood test or an imaging test that links to severity of disease across thousands and thousands of patients? But I don't think we've considered it looking at it from the perspective that you just identified. I guess that's a question for Scott. Can we take liver biopsies that are paraffin embedded and do any type of stellate cell work on them? Or do you have to have biopsies frozen in RNA later or something like that for which you can do work? Uh, it depends on the technique. I can't cite chapter and verse which techniques are dependent on fresh frozen tissue that hasn't been fixed in paraffin. But certainly there are techniques that have been around for over 10 years in which you can extract gene expression data from paraffin embedded samples. I guess part of the challenge is who pays for this? This is always part of the problem is, you know, the drug discovery and diagnostic fields are skewed towards companies that have the funds to pay to test them. And studies like the one you were describing are going to be a little bit of an orphan. Who's going to spend the money to pay for technicians to pull blocks out of the dusty old archives of a pathology department, slice them, stain them? It's the kind of thing where you hope that uh, NIH and other funders will pay for because unless it can enhance the commercial viability or success of a diagnostic or a, a drug, it's going to be hard to 
to find people with enough money to pay for those studies. But yes, they absolutely should be done. So we're about an hour in, which is usually when we take a look for final questions and time to wrap up. So let me start by asking Jorn, Stephen, Louise, any questions have come to mind or flesh through your head that we've not gotten around to and you want to make sure we touch on now? I guess my one question to Scott is how far are we off, Scott, to actually phenotype a patient with these technologies today? So I think some of them, as I mentioned, are already available. Most labs routinely genotype uh, individuals before they go on Plavix, for example, because it's a polymorphism. Plavix is a platelet antagonist. So there is a polymorphism that predicts the Plavix won't be effective. So some of it is already being done, but just really piecemeal. You know, every time I estimate how long it's going to take, I think in the end, you need to double it. (laughs) So I'm going to say optimistically, 10 years from now, we're going to have platforms that genotype patients and maybe divide them into subgroups. But I'm always, I don't want to say disheartened, but I'm always sobered by the reality of how long these kinds of studies take. Your guess is really as good as mine, Jorn and Stephen. I just have a, I don't know, maybe a very pragmatic question. When when can we expect the next great discovery paper or publication out of your lab, Scott? Oh, I've got some very cool stuff cooking. I have some wonderfully talented people in my lab, and I didn't really mention this in my career comments at the beginning, but I do want to emphasize that among the many job descriptions I have, perhaps the most satisfying over the long run has been mentor, and that's still the case. So I have some great stuff coming about how we think stellate cells behave differently in late versus early disease, uh, also how specific stellate cells remember that they were once activated. Some of that work is being presented by a really talented uh, junior faculty who was a postdoc in my lab, Sammy Wang, W-A-N-G. So her first name legally is Shuang, S-H-U-A-N-G. Have a look at her stuff that she will be presenting at ASLD in the coming weeks, and that'll give you a clue. But we're, we're still hot on the trail of these cell types, and obviously the more questions we get answered, the more new questions arise. I think it's cool. But of course, you know, I'm completely passionate and biased about the excitement of what we're doing. If I wasn't, I probably wouldn't be doing it. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next Wednesday, October 27th, to discuss using MRE to predict outcomes of chronic liver disease with Alina Allen of the Mayo Clinic. Ian Rowe will also join to share questions and reflect on how this connects to some of his work in Leeds. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe, surf on. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.